You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Michael, I am very excited with who we are about to introduce here. I'm laughing a little bit because uh, we're doing a retake on that because Andre said hooer. That's, that's it. Andre said the word whore, which is not the worst thing you've ever said on the podcast, but it was pretty funny, your pronunciation. And you make fun of my French. Michael, yeah, that's true. You know what? I earned this. <laughs> I'll wear it. <laughs> you know, I'm Michael, Michael Pincus of com. I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca. You know and what? Yes, I understand. I'm going to say something that's about to surprise you. Okay. I really love Chardonnay. Really? Which is really? why I'm so excited about who we're going to talk to, even though I oh, think... Oh, wait a second. I think most wine lovers would that associate... That was me falling off my chair. I think most people would associate who we're about to talk to with Pinot Noir, but screw them, Chardonnay. But you know what? Uh, there are not many winemakers, especially in Ontario, let's go with that, that you can actually... Just mention a single name, Sting, Madonna, you know, uh, Kid Rock, um, <laughs> things like that, that you can, you can just mention one single name and people know exactly who you're talking about. Actually, Michael, when I was in Oregon, I dropped this man's name with just his first name and people knew exactly who I was talking about. Yeah, you see, and, and obviously we're talking about Thomas. So, let's get to it. I feel like it's an exciting time to taste them. And when they start tasting like I am used to them tasting, then we'll release them. But 15 is a big year in both places. Eh? It's big. But hopefully yep. elegant. So, we'll see. 16 is less big. What would you get there? Piece it's a little of cork. bit of cork. A little bit of cork. It's not... as, uh, as everybody can probably realize, we are interviewing somebody today. And that voice should be familiar to everybody. That's uh, Thomas Batchelder. Thank Hi, you Thomas. for having me here. Welcome to the basement. So it's a secret. It's our secret yes. place. Secret and, layer uh, of wine. And uh, you just poured us something. This is the first time you have ever made Gamay in my whole life. Even a home winemaker, I never got Gamay grapes. Wow. So that's exciting. This is kind of exciting. So it's a sixteen. This is a Wismer Foxcroft single vineyard, and we don't know how much it's going to be, but it's not going to be. You know, it's going to be in line. You know, when you make wine the way we do, expensive way of making it, all in barrels and stuff, yeah. it has to be over twenty bucks. But it won't be like thirty or anything. I think it'll be like maybe twenty-two or twenty-three. But uh, this is one hundred percent Gamay Wismer Foxcroft Vineyard, and Should it is. We're just trying to figure out today when this should be released, because this is the only 16 we'll taste today. Obviously, everything else is still in barrel. This was all neutral barrel, all wild yeast as usual. This nice. is this is amazing. Wow, I love this. That's the um, that's the same vineyard where I bought my fruit from when I made <laughs> Hair of the Dog a couple years ago. Yeah. I would, it's uh, a very nice vineyard. I would happily uh, one buy that. And two, a lovely, put a little chill on that. That would be mm -hmm. fantastic. Yep. Well, I, you know, I'd never made Gamay before, and obviously I was I'm not set up to do Maceration Cabernet, so I just did... Pinot style ferment, but I really wanted it to taste like Gamay, and I had it in neutral barrels, and I called up Shiraz and a couple other great Gamay makers, and I said, I want to bottle my Gamay when I'm bottling my 15s. I'm going to bottle my Gamay 16 at the same time. He says, do it. Because he said, I said, yeah, well, it's convenient. The bottling truck's coming, you know, Hunter Bottling. He said, no, 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 do it because it's the right thing to do. Oh, and right. then I said, how long is it going to take to come out of bottle shock? And Shiraz said, it doesn't take long for Gamay. That fruit comes back and it's good. So now it's been in bottle two months and it does seem like it's popping back. Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful. 
Oh, I do like that. I love Gamay, so no, I, I know too. you do too. Mm -hmm. So, so thank you for this sneak preview. You know, you've, you've said that we're not sure how or when people will be able to get their hands on this, but hopefully it'll be soon. Right, and you know, our thing is that we haven't quite figured out yet how to get a license, and so uh, where we have our secret back cave cellar in Beamsville, we'd love to you know maybe rent their vines there and get a store, but. Even if you want to sell to individuals and you have no intention of having an actual store, you need that. You need those five acres or two hectares. Yep. Then you can sell on the internet in the store. And right now, Lifford, who is our uh, who is our distributor across Canada, but specifically here in Ontario, they cannot sell directly to individuals because we're an Ontario winery. Lifford selling Batch Elder Bourgogne or Batch Elder Oregon, or selling you know Brunello de Montalcino. They can do what they want, make offerings to individuals, but Ontario wineries are supposed to have their own five acres. And you can see in the, in the years to come, there's going to be a lot of ways to to try to get around that as we become a more mature, you know, region. Yeah. Well, I mean, you take a look at what's happening even in uh, Toronto right now. Um, we got microbreweries popping up left, right, and center, and it yeah. just feels really unfair to the the local wine industry that you know I can buy a space in Davisville where I live and buy my hops from wherever buy my malt from wherever slap made in Canada on the can and have access to the largest market in the country immediately while wineries are still tied to geography well, yeah it all has to do with the uh, the free trade act we all know that yeah and that's how we got screwed maybe uh and it's a post-prohibition mentality. Maybe Trump will rip it all up, and then we won't have to worry about any of it. Well, the LCBO would still have to make some changes after that. Yeah, let them rip it up. Yeah, but, uh, but, but you know, I just wanted to add one thing to what Mr. Prue said, and that is, you know, there's that lovely, cool uh, wine, uh, brewery going in, what's it on, Maple in, uh, in Vineland, and they have like an acre of hops behind, really cool, like, hop lines, just like in Kent in southern England, going up to the sky. And the second they have a batch of good beer ready, you know, they'll be able to be sell it there. Yep. And they grew the hops there, but they didn't grow the barley there. But it's cool. I'll be the first customer, and I'm all for them oh, being able to do it. it. I just want to be able to do it, too. That, and that's it. I think that's, that's the key point, is we don't want to make it harder for the beer distributors. We love beer and distilleries. We like yeah. those things. We want to make it easier for the wineries. All right. Let's get back on to Mr. Batch. Because <laughs> I think we could talk all day about various things. But we're trying basically your newest bottled wine. Am I correct on that? That is my newest bottled wine, yes. So, and Gamay is appropriate just as Aligote was appropriate in Burgundy. And there's one more thing we did that was in the Burgundian grape varieties that wasn't Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. We did a pure Pinot Blanc from Sauvignon Les Bones from a vineyard called Les Balias. And uh, we're really hoping Ontario is going to pick some of that up. Did it for three years in a row. And Sauvigny is the only village appellation that if you have a pure Pinot Blanc, you can call it Sauvigny, not Pinot Blanc. You have to call it Sauvigny Les Bones, just as Bouzeron is pure Aligoté, and you're not allowed to put Aligoté on the label. So Sauvigny has a mixture of, of Pinot Bureau or Pinot Gris, uh, Pinot Blanc, and Chardonnay planted, but only pure Chardonnay. Any mix of the three can be Sauvigny. Pure Chardonnay can be Sauvigny, and pure Pinot Blanc can be Sauvigny, but pure uh, Pinot Gris cannot be 70, even though they all they all uh, evolved in Burgundy. It's a very strange thing, very arcane law, and most people don't know it. <laughs> I love talking to Thomas because it just he sends my my head into these spins. I'm like, <laughs> uh, what's he talking about? But uh, I'm, I'm sure many people have that. 
that well, thought. It, so where did you get your start? Let's yeah, let's go way back, back to the beginning. beginning. That's yeah. what I was thinking. We have your newest wine in bottle. Where do you get your start in winemaking? I'd like to thank God and Jesus. And <laughs> Just like no. every good football player does. <laughs> but in the way, only in one way. I'm serious, but not, not serious. Uh, when the SAQ, I came of age, because I'm older than you two, I saw the last SAQ where you had to order from behind the counter. And on my 18th birthday, I think I went up there and you had to hand in a piece of paper. So marketing wasn't the same in those days because you couldn't see the label. You picked on what you wanted. This is like the consumer's distributing thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. consumer's distributing thing. And so I I got a Coturone and a couple of branded wines and a couple of Beaujolais that are still around, like Pistru. And, uh, and uh, I got six, bought a wine rack and gave it to my parents and forced them to drink uh, wine every Sunday night. And, and when it was a dry wine, my dad said, this is vinegary. And maybe I bought a couple of flops, but in general, because they were commercial, just fine wines, I know now he was not used to drinking dry wine. So when the acid came through, to him it looked more like vinegar, whatever that means. But that meant that already then I had an interest that came innately, or having grown up in the culture of Quebec, right? But some of it was innate, and I was convincing my family, and when they emptied all six and didn't fill them up, I go, no, no, that's not it. You see, you're supposed to, like, take a bottle and replace a bottle, or at least let it get three down and start, you know, keeping your cellar going. I hadn't read about wine. I just knew that that was what you were supposed to do. But by listening to my dad and hearing him say, and, you know, within five years, let's say, I'd figured out that his, I was disappointed when he'd say it was vinegary. Now I know it was maybe slightly higher VA, but he was mostly reacting to, they were drinking sweet wines, not, you know, off dry wines, like Hoch Tyler and Harfond de Neige in Quebec, uh, Owl of the Snow, Snow Owl, and uh, uh, what was that blueberry wine that everybody, boysenberry wine from BC. It was the only BC wine in Quebec back then. <laughs> and they were drinking, they all had probably 10 grams of sugar. So when they got something dry, he called it vinegary. And, and maybe he was also trying to say it's quite acid because he'd never seen acid before because it was always masked by sugar. Anyway, from there, I went on to home winemaking and wait, uh, wait, 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 just just one step though. Like as an eighteen-year-old though, like it sounds like you have a family that was drinking off dry wines. How do you know which bottle to pick up? Like, did you read something? Did you have? Yeah, I read a book or two or? on wine. I read a book or two on wine, and I read the Gazette column and the La Presse column every Saturday. It was just one, and I remember they wrote a column about me once in the Gazette. Here's a typical letter of a young from a young man whose fancy has turned to wine. You see. And uh, it turned out that that guy worked at Wine Tidings to Maurice Chenier. And, uh, you know, later on, I started working for Wine Tidings because I was in that article. And I went up and said, hey, can I have a job here? The Opinion Society. And they said, oh, weren't you the kid in that article? You're interested in wine, aren't you? You know? And uh, so th these things all add up. Like, your intent in life is worth so much. Your, your intent, you know, it's like... Uh, creative visualization but it isn't just that creative visualization i don't know if you've ever seen the book but it's about visualizing something that'll happen but it's more like if you have an intent to do something people say that intent and they help you too you so know? so was your intent always to be a, a wine journalist or did you always want to go i always wanted to make wine i mean i started making jam 
and you know jam jam is essentially like winemaking except you preserve the fruit from the moment you pick that strawberries when people ask me you know why why do you have to crush a pinot the same or we don't never crush it of course but distem pinot and get into vat the same day you get it i said well okay if you and i spent all day in the sun picking strawberries in a field would you put them on the counter in a hot mess and just say let's do this tomorrow would you think that would make the best jam? And then people get that instantly because they can see in their mind the mold and the strawberries by the next day and the mushiness. You want to capture the fruit while it's fresh and crunchy, you know. And so I started making strawberry jam and started making wine at home. And it's just, it's all, one person likes to make pickles. One person uh, likes to make wine. And uh, one thing I've often thought to myself is when you see how wine changes over the years, I mean, the way people make wine at one era, it was oaky when I was young. Younger than that, burgundies were a bit dilute. Then they got a bit, you know, too over oak. Then they got super concentrated, like they're competing with another grape or something. And I think what it is, is, you know, you are capturing fresh fruit with wine. And as it ferments, it becomes wine. The longer you leave it, the more it's going to go towards vinegar. So each generation captures wine at a slightly different stage of fruitiness, you know, ageable, age, ageness. Uh, and or you know, and uh, different generations accept different things. Some generations want squeaky clean wines, and this generation of millennials wants vin nature, and they'll take the cork popping out with CO2, and you know, and, and lots of funk, and because it's more individual than real, and that's what this generation wants, real experiences. So I'm told. Uh, but but generally, remember you, the first thing we learned. The first thing we learned was when we first read our wine book was that claret, which the British, you know, loved as they loved their Bordeaux because they owned half of Bordeaux, so they better bloody drink it. But when the British uh, called it claret, it was after the ancient claret when Bordeaux was a rosé. And it's hard to believe that you know Chateau Montrose or Chateau Latour would have been a rosé at one time, right? But uh, they were, and uh, Claret came out of that, and that's how things change, right? And then Robert Parker got his hands in it, and things really changed. Yeah. Look at this beautiful cat. <laughs> he, never, he never does this, but all right, here we are. Likes to have the cat on the podcast. Your dog will bark. My yeah, cat we will always just... have animals that, that appear from our uh, menageries. But you know, one thing I would love, I hope some young kids listen to it. I mean, I'm not an old guy, but I'm certainly not a young guy. And uh, I listen to your podcast, and I really hope the young ones do. Because, uh, the, the, you know, because I really think when you get out in the world these days, whether you're a journalist or whether you're in the wine sphere, or whether you're a wine seller or winemaker, you think it's all been done before. And there's nothing I could do. It was easy back in the old days. I came out thinking that. But then I just said, I'm going to go learn in Burgundy. Why would I go to California at Davis to learn how to make that kind of Pinot when I could go learn to make the tighter, more mineral Pinot because I grew up speaking How French. old were you when you decided that you wanted to go to Burgundy versus uh, UC Davis? So that's your yeah. first wine job, though, first of all, is in is in Burgundy. Right. Is in Burgundy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay wait, wait. Just... But we've gone, from, we've gone from journalism now to... To oh, going wine. to France. And just like they do in, um, uh, you know, in uh, 21 bottles or 100 bottles of beer on the wall, why don't you take one down and pass that around? Okay. Yeah, there you go. So, because he just poured himself so how, a glass. So, how, how then... long were you? How long were you writing, Thomas? I'm four glasses in. No. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's a better question. I, I was, um, I, uh, I was writing for about three or four years as I was a home winemaker. I got hired by Wine Tidings La Barrique, was the assistant editor of now it's called Vin Vignoble. 
for Nicole Barret-Ryan. And uh, I got hired there. And when I got into wine school, my wife was running her dad's art gallery in Westmount, Montreal. And I went in to the editor's office and I said, and she was pretty steely. I really liked her. Judy Rochester, real mentor in my life. Barb Leslie, who you guys both know, was also yep. there as the editor of Wine Tigers. But when I went in to Judy, uh, I said, Judy, I know you're counting on me to do all the jobs I do around here, but I'm going to go to wine school in France. And I thought she was going to bite my head off. And said, she said, wait a second. And she pressed the intercom, 40 people, and said, Thomas is going to France. Like, really happy for me. Because when you mentor people, even me, assistant winemakers, I don't want them to leave ever. But you know they're going to. Yeah. And it's part of their thing. Right, that's like Shauna when she was at the Clos Jordan. You knew Shauna was was going to go somewhere, and now that she's doing great things at Adamo, and you knew same with Kelly, who's helping out not only at, with me at Kalus, she's doing a lot of the work there, but she's doing Hansberg at the same time as you knew well. She's a fantastic winemaker. Let's not forget Isabel Munier, who you know, went on to now her own project. Before that, she was doing, of course, uh, uh, what the hell is it called, Evening Land Wines. But one of the biggest ones is Sebastien Jacquet, who we brought over to be my assistant. And when Kalis wanted him to work for Kalis, I said, no, no, I'm going to work for you guys. I'm going to start this thing called Batchelder. And, and Kalis did an awesome, I mean, Seb did an awesome job with the closure Dan yeah, before it closed down. And then, boom, now he's at Megalo. He's going to turn Megalo upside down. Yep. yep. He's, he's going to turn Megalo upside down. It's already, already started. I mean... But the world will understand soon yeah. what he's doing there. Absolutely. I hope so. Because... Lately, I haven't been happy with what's going on at Megalo. Um, there have been some real gems that have that have come out, but I mean, he's finishing someone else's work, and I, I think he's he's taking the ball to the end zone. But uh, I, I think I, we're going to wait and see what we'll wait and see. But I mean, I know because I've tasted them like some of the he, anything that was quite sweet, he's taken drier. Yep. and that's at the LCBO twenty thousand case thing. But at his 450 or 500 cases or 1,000 cases, he's going to make some stunning Pinots and Chardonnays and Sauvignons and Sauvignon Blancs. But the thing I'm looking forward to is the Bordeaux-style reds. I mean, that's what John Howard likes. Yeah. That's, that's where what the Seb was hired to, to make, which I've laughed with Seb about because, um, I, I mean, he's known for Pinot and Chardonnay, yeah. and he's hired by a man who is convinced that Bordeaux exists in Niagara. I know. Well, he he, uh, he worked at Lafitte Rothschild, and I mean, he was an assistant, 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 but he saw how it was done there, and he worked in Corsica, so he knows how to handle the southern grapes. Seb has like five degrees, but <laughs> anyway, you know. Um, well, we're, so you're, so so you're in France. You. We're so you're, so you're in France. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we just poured us something else, so tell us what this is first of all before we... So this is me being provocative again, because we have Wismer Park Vineyard from the Vineland Bench, the only people who've made wine from this vineyard are Norman Hardy, Derek Barnett, me, and now Shauna gets some of that at Adamo. And it's a really bloody red soil. And I think you can taste that. There's a bit of a bit your tongue or, uh, or um, what do you call, I've just forgotten, what do you call when you grind up the meat and you have it steak tartare? There's a bit of that feeling to it. Now, Pinot's always medium-bodied, so I'm not going to push that point too much. But we're going to have the Lowry next, and you can really see the contrast. We might want to come back to this one. But, I mean, my thing is all about wine school in France, but what did uh, we can talk about that and who I work for. But what that gave me was the Burgundy brainwashing, which is about keeping everything apart and trying to see the difference between villages. So you don't... You know, 
you don't oak something. In Burgundy, they wouldn't ever think to oak. That's not a verb in Burgundy. Everything's in barrel, right? It's just you manage your barrel, um, your new barrel usage, the way uh, a, an auto, uh, a rental car place would manage its fleet. You need some new cars every year or else your old cars are all going to break down. It's the same with barrels. That's the way the Burgundian thinks about barrels. And they work with the tenelier to give them barrels whose toast will not disrupt their terroir. And that's what I learned over there, keeping everything apart. What the Burgundians don't know really so much how to do, that thank God I learned it from them, was how do you deal with a new vineyard where the monks haven't told you what the best part of it is. And that I learned in Oregon when I was at Ponzi, but then later at Lemelson, and of course at the Closure of Dan, separate things, put them into vat, keep them apart and see what happens. And in the first year, if the vats are three tons, and you get, their, their capacity is three tons, and you get nine tons across the vineyard, well, you have three tons, three tons, three tons, you know, uh, left, center, and right, or west, center, east. You do that for a few years, and pretty soon you find out the good part of the vineyard. And um, that's also why I've always distemmed, because I love whole cluster Pinot winemaking, but it does tend to have a taste. And I'm not saying it trumps terroir, but I am saying when you're trying to figure things out, as I continually am, because in Batchelder I get new parcels all the time offered to me. And with the projects I've worked for, Lemelson, the Le Closure Dan, and Kedus were all like startups from zero. So I had to figure out the vineyards. So, so you know, destemming is a good way to do that. And you get very pure fruit that way, you know. So this is Wismer Park, which is, is, is like I said, uh, it does have that redstone feel. And we're all aware, K, uh, at uh, Claystone had that at Le Clos. I mean, I know Moritaz is into this flavor because him and Paul and Pascal, you know, when Pascal Marchand was working there, were all on to this concept of Redstone. They built a winery called Redstone, and that part of the Vineland bench, just before Beamsville, a lot of it does have that flavor. And this is early days, so remember when I left the Closure Den, I couldn't even, I didn't even know what Beamsville tasted like. So, so now I'm learning. How, how can people get this? Mm. This, Mary tells me it was the Wismer Park and the Lowry Vineyard, which is for the first time called Old Vines, planted in 84, we're going to have that next, are both been bought by the LCBO in small amounts. And uh, that's why we started off talking about getting your permit. So uh, someday we'll just, in, when we do a podcast, hopefully I'll be able to say, well, we've reserved 20 cases for our tasting room, the tasting room that's open once a year. Yeah. I mean, that's what we want, a once a year open tasting room. But, you know... And a, and, a, and a mailing list. So um, I think, and, and, and you know, we get back to Burgundy, but I must tell you, my passion for the Vineland bench probably comes out of my passion for the Jordan bench. But the reason when the Closure Dan, nobody knows this, except like this is not written in law anywhere, but my feeling is the reason the Closure Dan was able to buy up all this land in Jordan and also Flat Rock at the same time, because they were visionaries, the reason is that it was too far from the lake to do what they were trying to do in Beamsville and Niagara-on-the-Lake, notably Cabernet Franc, some other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they thought it wasn't doable and it was full of Labrisca. And so when, I mean, you won't find this in a history book because nobody has said this because they were local. They were Labrisca, they were soya, and they were cornfields, some of the greatest vineyards in Niagara. And so uh, when they realized, and this has taken me a long time to understand, somebody had to tell me, you know, the lake effect 
Yeah, the vines must be planted north. And I actually said, what? North is wrong. No, no, no. If you want them to be alive in the winter, then they better be planted north because that's close to the lake. And the further you get from the lake, the less lake effect. That we understand. Go one step further. What about vineyards that go further away from the lake and are higher in altitude? What does that do? Another thing, but still facing north towards the lake. And Vineland is a little bit closer to the lake than Jordan. Beamsville is a hell of a lot closer. But in the, con in the continuum between Vineland and Beamsville, you know, as you go past Redstone and Malabar, like I was still, you know, Len Penichetti, who I love, he's talking all the time about his K-Spring Vineyard being Beamsville. To me, that tastes more like a Vineland still. Before you get into real Beamsville, like real Beamsville is, you know, like what Harold Teal's doing, that tastes like Beamsville. And half of Kalis's vineyards are in Beamsville. So I have my Saunders vineyards in Beamsville. It's richer and heavier in Beamsville, which is a good thing. But uh, Vineland and Jordan are lighter on their feet. You know, you don't get amazingly dark colors on the bench. Um, you get a b beautiful perfume and beautiful minerality. I just love, love that mindset of the way that you're, you're talking about things. It's the same thing about being taught in Burgundy. It's all about the villages, right? Right. And, and, I, and, and you know... Uh, Actually, I, I've got some release dates. Okay, good. Here. So Whoa, look at the, you. Where'd uh, you get those from? These are from the LCBO for a piece I recently wrote about virtual wineries on torontolife.com. If anyone would like to check it out, I did talk about uh, Elder on there. And uh, the Lowry Vineyard 2014 Pinot Noir is out September okay. 30th. And the Wismer Park Pinot, which I think is what we're about... Nope, that was when we tasted. That is going to be coming out in Classics on October 7th. There you so go. So you'll have to order it. Look at you. And look what I just found here. I found an Adamo uh, Pinot Wismer Park 14. Would you like to try this while we're... I would. And yeah, that's a Shauna finish, you but mentioned not a Shauna start wine. And I thought, you know what, why don't we... Okay, so, uh, so Thomas, how old were you when you went to Burgundy? I was barely 30, and I started late. I had done a communications degree before. Okay. Then I worked for Wine Tidings, okay. worked for Voir de Montréal, and um, The Mirror, which doesn't exist anymore. About five magazines, Doctors Review, you know how it is for a journal. Anywhere somebody would publish something to you. Yes, trust me, we both know that very oh, yeah. much. Wrote a couple of books, and uh, one was called For the Love of Wine, that Barbara, Leslie, and I worked on together. Another one was called... You made this. It was about home wine making. And the funny thing is, we couldn't figure out which word to put the emphasis on. Listen to this. You're going to love this. You who loves playing on the Johnson Vineyard. Listen to this. Yes. You made this? Or it's about home wine making. You made this? You made this? You made this? <laughs> if it's good, it's you made this? <laughs> I, uh, this is full of... I, I don't, I don't want to get... Uh, oh, just... Yeah, that's right. That's what we'll do. That's what we'll put through. We're just going to do, uh, do a quick tasting because we just tried your, your Wismer Park, so I thought we would try um, uh, this same right, thing so, from a, so, a different winemaker. So how long, we were you, how long were you in uh, in Burgundy? Same nose. Beautiful. Uh, I was in Burgundy, so right through to Batchelder is probably up to five or six years now because I've spent so much time there. So Burgundy, if you want to start another podcast right now, I saw... I mean, we should do that someday. We should taste a bunch of Burgundies. You pick the you pick the Appalachians by anybody, and I'll tell you stuff. Because what happened was, you know how when you're new to a region, you soak it up, right? Yep. Like Andre soaked up. Well, your family comes from down here, but you're living elsewhere. But but the point is, when you're when I was new to Niagara, I remember Anne Sperling said to me, so when you're coming in from Lake, uh, from Fort Erie, and you're on the QEW, and you pass Niagara Falls, and you come down the escarpment. You turn right at Mountain Road, and I thought, 
and Sperling is so clearly not from here because nobody local on the QEW would ever say you're coming down the escarpment. You don't think about the escarpment when you're on the QEW. It's a six-lane highway, for God's sake. But Anne thinks about that because she's a terrorist and she wants you to know where you are at all times. So I soaked up Burgundy the same way. And I want to say for the young ones who may want to go over there or the old ones who may want to go over there, Burgundy certainly still exists. And I think the fact that the properties are so cut up and it's such a bitch, and all the inheritance laws and stuff, it's such a bitch to making wine cheaply. That's why it's many reasons why it's so expensive. The good news about that, it's resisted in international you know, con conglomerates and everything. And so I would say that the old Burgundy is still there. Uh, if, if somebody ever wants to challenge me on that, they should pay a trip for me over when I don't have to work, and I will show them the old Burgundy. I'll find them 25 or 100 places. There's 2,000 domains in Burgundy. The new, dirt, the new Burgundy is really there, and the kids have a certain entitlement now and all that shit. But, oh, you like to say yeah, shit? Yeah, we say shit. Okay. You can also so, say the F word, too. Okay, well, we'll wait for the F bomb until we really find, you know. But the thing is, when I went there, the old Burgundy was everywhere, and the new Burgundy was just peeking through. When, when, when Delarche... I worked for uh, Domaine de la Créa in bligny les bones and that was a small, no, it was a big 24-hectare domain owned by uh, a négociant chenou. This was their domain, very pure. Then I went to Maris de Larche in Corton, Alos Corton in Pernambergelès, and I got real, you know, grounding in Pernambergelès versus Corton. And uh, then the third place I worked years later was uh, Chateau Genoge Boulanger, where I was, they, we were building a big winery, like think... Uh, a big, good gravity winery, like, I mean, you know, much smaller than Stratus or much smaller than Jackson Triggs, but that kind of effort with suspended tanks and stuff. And this was 1995, two years after school. And I got the job there because the regisseur at that time, the manager didn't know how to make wine, so he needed somebody. That was a huge jump for me. When you're vinifying 24 hectares in Burgundy, most wines are less than a hectare, right? So a hectare is 2.4 acres. So you're doing a lot of wines and matching a lot of barrels to a lot of wine. And we had a lot of fun and I learned a lot. But at Marius de Larche, one example of the old Burgundy was I called up Mary and I said she was teaching dance in Burgundy to help us survive because I wasn't making any money. And I said, we need you. You got to drop everything and come down today. She says, why? Well, um, because uh, this guy ordered 106 packs of Alos uh, Corton uh, Village. I said, she goes, what's the problem? I go, they're 375s, they're splits. And, uh, you know, Philippe Delarche, who, who passed very young at 51, he, he, he said, I told the importer never to sell splits because I just don't make that much wine. I do not want to make half bottles. And so I said, so what are we doing? He goes, we're making half bottles. <laughs> and so <laughs> we popped open the corks, checked for corkiness, and poured a bottle into two half bottles and we tried to do it with funnel. He said don't use the funnel it's going to be too slow just get the hang of it so we had to do 106 packs of that and we stood there all day you were sore by the end of the day but that was the old burgundy right and no extra added sulfur ah it'll be okay you know and of course it was okay you just didn't sell it the next day the wine came back into itself you know but i mean it's like the old burgundy believe me is still there and when we finished diatomaceous earth filtration on another job. Remember, it was Le Corton. Uh, two things happened. That, so they had Corton Renard, which was the better crew. And then they had Le Corton, which is the best crew, but it wasn't their best. They didn't have the best part of it. So I preferred Corton Renard, and, and Philippe preferred Corton Renard. So 
We filtered uh, Corton Renard, then we filtered Le Corton, which was all of 500 barrel, uh, bottles, like it was two barrels. And then the lees amounted to 20 liters of the two and threw them together. And I'm like, uh, that's, you know, let's let it settle out and I'll just bottle them. I'll drink them with my everyday wine. He went, ah, and threw it down. The, like, I'll give you bottles. I'm like, you won't give me enough bottles. You don't understand. I need these 20 bottles of Corton in my life. <laughs> and he took them and he threw them outside the door in the gutter. But Pernambuco is one of the most mountainous villages in Burgundy. And they have like paving stone gutters, little, little, little caniveau it is in French. And he just poured it down. And it just went all the way down the village. Like the sanitation laws were like, you know, you were supposed did, to. Did you chase it down with bottles in your hand? <laughs> like, like, I'm going to bottle that up. Uh... So as we left for lunch, we just bottled, again by hand, we just bottled. He emptied all the casks by hand by lifting up the cask with a little, like, remember the thing that used to go under cars? You'd pump it and it would lift yeah, the car. Yeah, the yeah. jack. Jack. Yeah. So he'd lift the barrel with that and pop the bottom bung. You know, that doesn't exist yeah. anymore in most cases, but the circle's still there on some barrels. Pop the bottom bung, let it fall into a bucket, like, you know, a porter rinse bucket, and then from there, pump it into tank. So a little aeration into the bucket. And I'm like, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, and Pascal and I, when we started the closure, then we talked a lot about this. So we get it all into bottle. Corton Renard that I like better, still to this day, and Le Corton. And as I'm leaving, I'm locking up for lunch because they made me a fabulous lunch each day. Monsieur Delarche, so 65-year-old Marius Delarche, the regretted Marius Delarche, comes in, looks around, dips down into the 500 bottles, because two full barrels would have been 600 bottles, but we lost some 500 and something bottles, took a bottle of just about Corton and went off to his lunch. I'm like, oh man, that's a real vigneron. Like the second it was bottled, which I would never do. He's like taking it home for lunch. Look, Corton, why not? He owned it. <laughs> so, so okay. So I guess we're we're in. We're, you can cut that part out, eh? You're not gonna hear that part. <laughs> so he's listening. So okay. So let's get you out of France, mm -hmm. uh, and now you, Oregon, correct? That's your second stop. Yeah, and then we must talk about this. Oh, okay. Point. You want to talk about the? Yeah, let's, let's talk. Well, quickly. let's let's get to that that wine quickly. So it's the Adamo uh, Wismer Park uh, because I thought you know side yeah. by side, uh, interesting, interesting, uh, and totally similar. To me, it's a different handling of the wood, but Shauna there, or, and Shauna, I've forgotten who was a winemaker before Shauna. Do you guys remember? Uh, well, Jonas, oh, was Jonas, Jonas, Jonas Newman, Newman was the consultant. That's uh, right. Yeah. So a different, you know, a little more oak than I would use, but uh, that's not a that's not a, a slam. I mean, you're sitting in Burgundy watching 10 people do the same vineyards, you know, and they're all slightly different. So, I mean, that is just a totally beautiful rendition. I think Shauna has a great palate and, and a great uh, work ethic, and I think... Uh, We'll see even better stuff out of her in the future because she's so totally too. committed. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's really good. That's a really nice wine. You can you can get the perfume note that you get out of yours, uh, but as you said, a little bit. Uh, not, I don't want to say harsher, but I mean a little, a little, a little more angular. A little yeah. More, yeah, a little more. But maybe it'll live longer than mine. I mean, that's the thing about wine. You know, by the time you drink your last bottle of something, you go, oh. I was wrong. Should or, have, oh, have, I was right. Should have had that years ago. Or yeah, but or even about wine techniques. Or I might have said, oh, I should have done like Shauna. Or said another way, you you might have said, I've judged this wine harshly all its life, and now I love it. You know, it's the same way wine moves. So going back to Wismer Park, just to set the stage before Lowry. So I would I, little, I, a little more perfume. Yours is a yeah. little more perfumed, a little bit lighter, a little richer, a little richer in in yeah. flavor, not as much. Um, uh, not as you said, not as much wood. Uh, 
It's a little silkier in the mouth. And I would love to explain something these two wine writers just said, which took me a long time to understand. For the punters out there, which I'm a puncher too, I, I, I would say that um, you guys, it is a little lighter, is a little more perfumed, and yet it's very expressive in the mid-mouth. And people who don't understand Pinot Noir can't understand why you said it was lighter but still rich. You know, it, it just... When you think this light-colored wine is going to be, I'm going to pour that bottle down the drain, then all of a sudden it's so rich and full in the mouth and plush, and that's Pinot Noir, you know? And uh, just before I get on to Oregon, Lowry Vineyard, the story of that was somebody didn't pick up. I was making uh, Chardonnay in Burgundy, Niagara, and Oregon, and I mentioned them in that order because that's usually the picking order. And... Um, but when we started with Pinot Noir, I started in Burgundy and Oregon because there's not as much Pinot Noir in Niagara. It's easier to get Chardonnay plots here. But I also wisely, at the time, that was the last uh, of my wisdom, I also wisely thought if I didn't have a Cuvaison, which is usually 15 to 20 days in Niagara, I would make my life easier. So go to Burgundy, press the Chardonnays, ferment the Pinot, get it to barrel, come to Niagara, press the Chardonnay, it's going, run to Oregon, press a Chardonnay, do the Pinot and stay till the end of it, get it to barrel or whatever, but not have the Niagara Pinot. Did I have a good regard for for, Chardonnay, for Pinot and Niagara? Of course, I love it here. I love the limestone here. I love the perfume here. I think it's second in the world to Burgundy. And when we get to Oregon, I'll have nice things to say about Oregon, but I think Niagara beats Wipra, and I think it beats, uh, not beats all other Pinot Noir regions, when it's good for Burgundy-like. It still has more fruit than Burgundy, but Burgundy-like is not the only goal. No. Right? The other goal could be the best to make the best Wiper or the best Nelson or the best uh, Sonoma Coast, right? Those are all good goals. But I grew up on drinking limestone, so I like it here. And, you know... Uh, I love it when people, Norman and I have agreement when, when people say, because Norman Hardy is Mr. County for sure, but he makes a lot of Niagara wine. And when people say to either of us, oh, you know, the it's Dolomitic limestone here in Niagara, and, and uh, you know, they have the real calcareous limestone in the county, I love to say, yeah, so we have, you know, the Cote de Bone and the Cote de Nuit in Ontario. Or, you know, I just, the simplest thing is to say, the lakeside regions of Ontario are making fantastic Pinot and Chardonnay. Point final. And, oh, your cat loves us today. He does. Yeah. He seems to be all over us. I don't know what's going on. You know, on. I, I do think that's something that, I, like, I've started to, to notice with, with my writing. And I think even as consumers, we're, we're guilty of that. Like, the wine industry here is entering a, a certain level of maturity now. Mm -hmm. And we need to stop comparing ourselves to right. uh, other regions and focusing on on what we've got here and the best I mean, we do here well, i mean even even just earlier in the podcast when you when you went down the highway going from jordan vineland beamsville and talking about the differences b between those three regions i mean there's a lot here that doesn't need to be held up to to burgundy or to oregon so we're looking here at the uh, lowry vineyard old vines and you said old vines were planted in 1984 and then yep and I know Andre always has a problem. It says old vines in the label. Vieirinha, actually. And um, Andre always has a problem with the term old vines. So was 84 old enough vines for you, Andre, or no? I don't have a problem with it. It's just... It's, it's just, not regulated. No, it's yes. not. That's not, so we neither, have I mean, reserved. that's the question. It's, it's, it's just... It's, it's terms that... Um, I mean, we just talked about not, com not comparing. But the thing is, when you're setting standards and you're setting up a VQA to be similar to AVA and... 
and, and other sort of organizations. I mean, in, in France, they wouldn't even think about using old vines until you're getting to uh, 50 years old. So, I mean, it's just we don't have that in, uh, we don't have that in, in Niagara. No, we don't. And so here's the thing. When I called up, uh, uh, when I called up uh, VQA and I said, I'm going to do this thing, and it's going to be called Batch Elder Bench. And she goes, what? And no, you're not doing that because are all your vines going to be on the bench? I said, I don't know what the hell Batch Elder is going to become. No, I don't know. Seven years ago. And so we said, okay. You can't be called Bachelor Bench, so you know, I became Bachelor Niagara. But the point is, my intention at the beginning was to do mostly bench. And then years later, when I called them up at Lowry, I said, because I don't know all the VQA rules, or if I did, I, I've forgotten some of them. I said, I'd like to call it Old Vines. I'll explain you the story in a sec why I want to do that. And uh, so they said, sure. We have decided not to get into that game. We're in enough games, Thomas, reglamenting stuff. So let's just let that one go. So what happened to me was when the reason Pascal Marchand, who you know started the Clos Jardin from Boisset's side, ended up in wine in Burgundy, I can make this really short, was he was on the Lakers. He was a kid who couldn't find his way, let's say. And Played basketball? <laughs> No. No. The boats that never see the sea. I, I forget, if you're not from here, we should say that the boats that never see the seaside but are big enough to cross the ocean and just carry iron ore from Sudbury or, or you know, whatever, Hamilton to back and forth to Chicago and Montreal, those are the Lakers. And he was a seaman on the on the Lakers. And, you know, Won't touch seaman. That's too no, easy. No, no, no. That's too easy. Well, but, but here's the thing. Uh, he stopped and he tasted with Carl Kaiser and was wowed by what could be done in Canada. It's talking about your intent and creative visualization and stuff. He goes to France to pick grapes, still searching for himself, pick grapes, and falls in love with a French girl and her dad, who's Chateau de Chaux de Bonne, says, I got a friend who's letting his vineyard go. And uh, he was a count living in Paris and it was, a, a, you know, Domaine du Clos des Epineaux and Pascal took that and ran with it. He separated the old vines, 55-year-old, 35-year-old, and 20-year-old, uh, and he only put the 55 and some of the 35 into the premier crew, Domaine du Claude Zeppino in Pomard, uh, which is also called Comte d'Armand, because that was a Comte's name, Comte who never came down, not very often. And when, you know, he was very influential in Burgundy, Pascal, doing that. But of course he influenced me. And I was after wine school and before wine school tasting with Carl Kaiser, Kaiser, and he was making this fabulous thing that presaged the Clos Jordan called Alliance. And I said, what are you using? All Montague Vineyard, which I have a great respect for. It's a Niagara on the Lake Vineyard yes. that has mm -hmm. great tension. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, oh, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm switching to Lowry. You got to try Lowry. And that is why Lowry, the Lowry family, split into two, half did Ravine, half did Five Rows. But the Five Rows are the first Five Rows a Pinot planted ever? I don't know, but the first five that have stuck. And, and the, a lot of people argue that point. So there's 84, 88, and 93 plantations. And like Pascal, but in a different way, the 93 has never, ever made it into... Uh, the Lowry Vineyard. For me, it goes into the um, goes into my Niagara or my Parfum, whatever one I'm making on a given year. But the the interesting thing is that uh, Wilma Lowry, 
who I had helped in the past saying, yeah, you should do, you know, Farmgate Winery for sure. She came to me at the closure right and said, totally, you should do it. We were buddies. And then, of course, her son, Wes, who's a, a little genius, got into it. And Howie was the, the vineyard guy. They're all, they are all the vineyard people. When they started to do five rows, they got a few years into it and they remembered me, thank God. And they called me up and they said, we have 800 kilos of, of that somebody isn't picking up. So there's the new plantation and there's the old. The old includes 93, okay? I don't put, the new is what, I don't know, 2000 or 2005. I don't know, I've never got any of it. I'd like to get some if the Lowers are listening and I'd like to use this platform to ask them for. <laughs> <laughs> Listen up. So here's the thing. When, when she called me up and said eight, eight, you know, 800 kilos of 84 and 88, I'm like, well, where do I sign? But those 800 kilos made me make red wine. Whether you make two liters or 200,000 liters of Pinot, it still takes at least 15 days in the vat, right? So that tied me up from going to Oregon. But I decided to do that in 11 because it was such a great vineyard. And I'd had this past with it with Carl Kaiser. Kaiser. And so... I got in there and I made it. And the the thing, if you're not in the wine industry, the thing is one metric ton equals 600 liters, roughly. Yeah. And if you sort your Pinot, that's Chardonnay, and you might get more, 625, if you, for the, at the high end, uh, you know, but if you sort your Pinot even a bit, it's like 550 liters. So 800 and a barrel is 228. So 456 is two barrels. So 800 kilos is barely going to get you two barrels. Well, we put that out, and I couldn't believe the finesse of it. So what I have just done for you is kind of provocative and in that I put kind of ballerina after the more four-square wine. I mean, we can go back to Lowry. You might like it better. You might. Well, I think that what's interesting is this is um, VQA St. David's Bench, and when you start tasting Pinot from the St. David's Bench, it's this big earthiness that's usually a signature. Mm-hmm. This is... Not the case. This here. is a lot of, this is violets and floral and uh, there is some there is some earthiness to it, but it's 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 buried underneath this barrage of, of fruit and flowers yeah. and it's when I saw that I said I have to return and continue making wine. Yeah. Uh, Pinot Noir and Chardon in, in, in Niagara, however much that makes me have to take two planes sometime this year and I'm not a, sometimes, you know, when the harvests are close together you have to come back to check on a ferment. But What's provocative about this, this is a very similar to, and remember we said we wouldn't reference other nations, but here, for the Burgundy lovers, we maybe should. If you have a Pomard, uh, or let's say a Nuit Saint-Georges Premier Cru, and a Chambol Premier Cru, you know that uh, the Chambol is going to be lighter, but, but maybe more expressive. Same, too, with going from Pomard to Volnay. And so some people will serve the lighter one after, but most will put it before. And it's also about pedigree in Burgundy. Here, there's no pedigree. Whatever we tell them is the order, is the order. But I definitely put the lighter one, but very expressive one after, just like you might put a silk shirt after a cotton shirt. I prefer cotton to silk in shirts, but in wine, I prefer silk. So, I mean, uh, in Pinot, I should say. So, I mean, that's that. So, um where are we going next? So how many, you said you had 800 kilos of this, so you made In what, like, 11. Okay, I made two 11. barrels, 600 bottles. Okay, but now so I'm, Yeah, now I'm up to eight barrels, and nice. I hope they keep giving it to me. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in exploring single vineyards, and um, the, the, this is a very important point, which is, in the new world, you must never put all your barrels into the single vineyard. Even if it's the best part of the vineyard, and you've sussed out the best part of the vineyard, what you must do 
is find out which barrels are most harmonious together. And I know I've tasted with you guys before, and we've talked about this, but for the for the purposes of the podcast, if you are in um, uh, another place, I'd love I'd love to make wine in this great premier crew of Merceau. I've never made Merceau since Jeannot Boulanger. I would love to make Merceau someday, and it's so hard to find, and it's one of the biggest appellations in Burgundy. But, you know, the grapes are just going all over the world. I mean, wines are. But one of the great, great uh, vineyards up there is Merceau Les Perrières. It's right beside Cham. And that is so fine that people have said, should it be a Grand Cru? And I did a tasting a few years ago, should it be a Grand Cru? I'm not sure it is a Grand Cru, but I, but it's close. And so Merceau has no Grand Cru's. Why am I saying this? Because if you ever get grapes from Merceau Perrière and you got 10 barrels, 10 times 25 cases, 250 cases, you will release 250 cases unless there's some really bad problem with one barrel. You will release it, okay? If I had 10 barrels of a single vineyard in the New World, given that I don't pay as much, there you, you know, here what we pay for a single vineyard wine and grapes might be what they pay for Bourgogne over there. It's so expensive. So when you're paying that much for great vineyards, you try to get them all into bottle. Whereas here we're discovering the vineyards. We pay the same with grape grower price, whether we buy A or B or Z. So we're better off to try to get to what's the filet mignon of this vineyard? What are the best barrels together? If the new barrel or if you have two new barrels and one of them is sitting out and it's angular, put that into your village. In my case, it's called Parfum or Niagara Peninsula Pinot or Chardonnay, right? And that will help you define the vineyard quicker. That's what I'm talking about. Define the vineyard. Define the vineyard. Yes, selling eight barrels, 200 cases of Lowry is better for me if I can sell them all, but, but then four barrels or 100 cases. But if it doesn't make an impression on the person that they're tasting something special, what's the point? Because we're just, like you said, defining our villages, defining our single vineyards. So, so you know, it's doing the same thing in Oregon. Same thing in Oregon. Well, let's bring us back, back to Oregon. We're back in yes. Oregon. We have to how, rinse now. How do you go from uh, Burgundy to Oregon? And so Burgundy to Oregon is because I met a girl. It's a story about a girl, but a sexy girl. always about a girl. So I went to Burgundy with a sexy girl who's my wife, but I met another sexy girl whose name is Louisa Ponzi, and she was taking over uh, her family from Dick Ponzi, one of the pioneers, her family's winery. And uh, uh, she was there with her boyfriend, Rick DeFerrari, who started Oregon uh, uh, Francois Ferrer d'Oregon and now DeFerrari Barrels in Oregon using Oregon Oak. Very cool project. He was inspired when we were at school together. But I love to say I met a girl because it's a provocative sounding thing. But really, she it was so cool. She said, you got to come and work in Oregon. I go, no way. I'm staying in Burgundy. She, she said, you have no idea what's going on in Oregon. And think, this is 20 years ago. We all didn't know much about Oregon 20 years ago. And and um, and so uh, she, she said, we can make good Chardonnay, but nobody believes that. They think it's only Pinot Gris. They still, they still think that. I know. It's crazy. It's completely crazy. I, I, went, I actually went there last summer because of you. Um, yeah, I was we, knowing your history there. And I just, uh, the uh, Becca Barnhart, the person who does wine mm. uh, country Oregon, uh, we had a bit of a laugh when I arrived there. She's like, I know you said you wanted to, to drink Chardonnay while you were here, so I did the best I could, but you know, you're in Pinot Gris country, and I just don't get it. I don't get it. A lot of wineries, the Pinot Gris, like, 
plain basic Pinot Gris costs more than these beautiful, elegant, well put together Chardonnays. But I mean, continue with. The well, you guys, right, we, are, we are running out of time here. Uh, we, is that we, possible? It is. Well, it, it it is because we like to keep uh, any interviews to about an hour. I think it's so, going to go a little longer. But you can should, cut so, some out. You can cut but, some but out. But I mean, you know. Cut out the X-rated stuff. We obviously have to bring Thomas back to talk about oh, his. Um, Oregon. About, about his. Um, uh, about his. About his Johnson. But that's another story. <laughs> a, I was really sorry to learn that you lost your Johnson. And, I know, uh, I know. Because um, you, you did have a wine called Johnson Vineyard. And I, you know, I had sat many, many hours making fun of uh, you. <laughs> the name. Yeah, playing with your Johnson and all that kind of thing. But here we are, uh, we're talking about Oregon. Oregon Chardonnay, 2014, just about to arrive. And uh, what I want to say about about that is this, the secret to Oregon. When I worked for Limbleson Vineyards in Ponzi, a lot of people, not criticized me, but chided me for going, you know, don't try to be too Burgundian in Oregon. I said, no, no, it's not that I'm being too Burgundian in Oregon, because Burgundians are about revealing terroir. There's no Burgundian flavor. It's about revealing the terroir. I said, what you are being is too Californian. And they're Californian to the point where, and you know, and if there's any Oregonians listening, and I think this internet is a big place. Yep. And I was on Natalie McLean and two people wrote in from Oregon. I couldn't believe it. And I mean, and so the, the point, what I'm trying to say is, Oregon's super influenced by California, and they should be. It's the next state over. Ontario's influenced by Quebec. Quebec's very influenced by Ontario. We're all influenced by Upper New York State, for instance. But I gotta say, when you have something the size of California making, all 50 states make wine, but you know, California makes 95% of it, mm -hmm. right? So their styles tend to dominate, and you are scared stiff going up against California Chardonnay. Not some, even California Pinot, is, they're scared of it, and they want to emulate it, and it's what they drink more often than Burgundy, and that affects your brain eventually, affects yep. your palate. And I love, just want to say, I love the best California Chardonnays and Pinot. I search out the cooler ones, and we could all name a bunch. I don't a bunch of them. We don't need to name them, but that is going to affect the Oregon winemaking because you guys would be great winemakers because winemaking is not just about doing the grunt work. It's about having a palate, and a palate is when you pick the grapes, when you stop the maceration. What? Ooh, that wood didn't work. Where am I going to make that barrel disappear? And blah blah blah, right <laughs> down to when to bottle and when to release. Journalists, I think, you know, make great winemakers. I mean, doctors can too, because doctors are the most passionate other profession that comes over. Lawyers don't. Sorry, lawyers. There's about five lawyers <laughs> who are winemakers in the world. There's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of doctors. But uh, coming to Oregon, they are afraid to compete with California Chardonnay and Pinot. Gris seemed an easier fix because it was a niche, just like Sauvignon Blanc from mm -hmm. New Zealand. But they should compete because it's cooler in Oregon. Yes. And 15 is a warm year, and we're still in But it even comes down to, like I said, with New World Wine Regions not needing to compare themselves with anyone else. Because this Oregon Chardonnay tastes different than Niagara. I mean, it's still very much Chardonnay, but it's really good balanced. It tastes nothing like California. Great acidity to it. What, what I've always liked about um, Oregon Pinot is that it kind of embraces both the California and Oregon. I think I love always, that. You can always you can taste Oregon in it, but they you know the best of Oregon always seems to marry that California rich fruit 
with whatever Oregon brings to it, and I think that's that's what well, that's a very good insight, and and you know, and it, for those of of, the, of your folks listening who, who 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 love Niagara, who love Ontario, who 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 want Prince Edward County to succeed, when Oregon started the IPNC, right, and we followed the International Pinot Noir Celebration, which is a year after our Chardonnay celebration here called I4C at the third week of July. One of the reasons we started that was we realized we needed to make Niagara and Prince Edward County a category. And I'll prove to you how 30 years of the IPNC, International Pinot Noir Celebration, made Oregon Pinot uh, a category. Their biggest states that they export to are Texas and Florida. And you say, it's too hot to drink Pinot. Don't they drink white wine down there? Well, maybe they're sick of calves in those hot states in the Lake Pinot. But whatever it is, when couples go out to eat there, after years and years of work on the Oregon's, on Oregon's part and education, they'll, a couple go and say, let's have a Pinot. And that means in the U.S., as you know, let's have a California Pinot. California makes twice as, or if not three times as much as Pinot as, as Oregon because they make twice or three much of everything than yep. the rest of the country. Uh, and, but, and it can be very, very good in California, but, you know, following Michael's remarks that uh, Oregon does marry the best of both now couples they sit down people who love wine they don't have to be educated but they'll sit down in the restaurant and they'll say let's have pinot noir tonight the response will actually be let's have an oregon pinot noir tonight the dream the wet dream of oregon winemakers and marketers especially is coming true it's a category that exists in people's heads in the states less uh let's have a kiwi pinot might exist i think that exists a little more in canada but you know, and of course, what doesn't exist anymore at all in the general drinking populace is let's have a Pinot from Burgundy. First of all, they don't know it's Burgundy that's made from Pinot Noir. And second of all, it's not on the shelves anymore. It's too expensive. Mm-hmm. It's not just too expensive. It used to be too expensive. Now it's too expensive and not on the shelves yeah. outside of Bourgogne Pinot Noir. So the kids coming up just go, let's have a Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, always California. And then all of a sudden, let's try an Oregon. And then they get that taste in their head, which is a little bluer than California, a little cooler climate. Do we have one of those around? No, we got to cut it off. Next time. <laughs> so, 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 tell me about, about your uh, your time in, in Oregon there, because you would have been there right when they were kind of entering an, an area of maturity. I mean, the the Oregon Oregonian wine industry is a little bit. Uh, younger, or sorry, a little bit older than the Ontario wine industry. Right, so I was there in 93, and then I went back to Merceau for Chateau Jeanneau-Boulanger, and then, you know, I was between trains for a while, as they like to say in the business. Winemakers have a tough time because they go to wine school, then they do a vintage, then they do another vintage, then they try to get a vineyard job, then they try to get a full-time, you know, seller assistant job. But they may, when they get that first job, it's possible they've never seen a wine through from picking to bottle even, because they just made it, left. Went to the Southern Hemisphere, made it, left. So it's hard to get that critical experience. And, you know, I was between trains too some of the times for that stuff, waiting for the next job. And, um, but when I had a job in Merceau and I went to Lemelson, uh, that was 99, uh, what I found out was it was on fire, the Oregon, in response to your thing. They was moving much faster. Now there's like 600 wineries in Oregon. So there's you start to get a critical mass. And as for the Chardonnay, uh, they had the wrong clone for too long. They had a California clone yep. that didn't get ripe. And so it was always green. So they thought they just couldn't grow it. We're not warm enough to grow Chardonnay in Oregon. No. Use the Dijon clones. Duh. 
that's what Canada did from the beginning because we thought we had a similar climate, you know. So as soon as they planted those clones, people started to make better wines. Still, though, they have the California taste and probably lower end California taste in their mind. They don't have Macon Village in no. mind. They don't have Chablis in mind. They don't have Merceau in mind, right? So, you know, what your intent in winemaking, as we said earlier on this podcast, and your intent in making wine and your palate and your past experience is all going to affect it. And if you think, and I do believe wine's made in the vineyard and less by the winemaker, for sure. But still, man, if you pick two laters, two weeks later than me, you're going to make a heavier wine. Depending on the year and the region, that's a good or a bad thing. So I've got one more question for you, Thomas, mm. and here we go. Do you ever feel that you're spread? You're, you're making wine in Niagara. You're making yourself in. Uh, you're making yep. wine in Burgundy. You're making wine in uh, Ni- Niagara, Burgundy, place? Oregon. Yeah. Okay. You're also, you know, uh, consulting winemaker at a uh, number of properties. Number ever, of properties. Yeah. Do you ever feel that you're spreading yourself too thin? So my daughter's leaving for university, and uh, this my youngest. And I said uh, to myself, when I was about uh, 30, 35, I said, you know, when my daughter leaves the university. There's no way I'm going to be able to say I'm young anymore. You know, there's no way. It's, it's like your kid's going to university. Jesus, you can't be a spring chicken. But that said, it's I like being busy, and it's fun to be busy. And Louisa Ponzi, who who said to me, you know, we're, we're old, old friends, and uh, uh, we're just old friends. And I'm sure she, she is still very sexy, but it's always been an old friend. And as I just said that, to be provocative for the thing. And uh, she's one of my mentors. Hopefully, I've had an effect on her. But she said to me, when you start this three terroir project, you'll do it for five years. And then you'll concentrate. I know you're going to go to Burgundy because you love Burgundy. What actually happened was we're seven years in. But what actually happened was uh, two really surprising things. I found that my value add in Burgundy is is because I want to do it. Burgundy doesn't need me. in Oregon, no, it's true. There's lots of good domains there, but I'm, I'm making good wine there. Uh, but the grape prices went up and mm. up and up. And we can't line price anything except Bourgogne Chardonnay and Niagara Chardonnay and Oregon Chardonnay. Line pricing. Do I have to explain that? No. no. Okay. So, 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 but on the other hand, Oregon was a huge shock that if we applied more elegant techniques, and again, I'd worked for two or three wineries in Oregon, but if we really looked every day at Oregon versus Niagara, let's say, both New World, widely spaced vineyards that photosynthesize more than Burgundy because they have more leaf cover, so they are getting more fruit. So we don't want fruit bombs. When I did not want Oregon to be the ugly stepsister, I wanted, you know, you know, I wanted I, I wanted her to be as, you know, as life as Niagara or Burgundy, but different. But, uh, you know, Oregon does get a little few more hot years and but what the big surprise so I was very surprised by what we could do in Oregon I was shocked by Niagara I was I was I was shocked by Niagara I already knew from the closure den and 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 Carl Kayser and other people's efforts like Hidden Bench and Taz and, and a bunch of people uh, that that great wine could be made here but what was shocked me uh, when I was a few years into the project is that our Niagara warehouse was the emptiest one and that you know I've been to the northeast three times lately 
Uh, we're distributed in Buffalo and Rochester and stuff. It's small amounts. It's early days. But they want Niagara, and they'll take some Oregon and Burgundy to help us out. So they want to drink local. And, uh, and in England, uh, David Gleave uh, of Liberty Wines has always sold more Niagara than anything else. He's never taken Burgundy because he has good Burgundy distributor appliance, uh, and he likes his Oregon too. But what they really want from us is Niagara. So the answer can only be, even if we do all three, we have to grow in Niagara. We have to eventually buy a winery in Niagara. I think we can get a permit here to have a tasting room, even if we don't use a room, as I said earlier, but without buying a winery. But the thing about buying a winery someday would be it would come with vines. So you don't mind being a micro-negos, which is what we are. It's not virtual because we pay rent and we make our own wines and we bring them up, but we don't own the vines. Lots of Niagara wineries buy in grapes. But the thing is, if we could have a secure supply of at least, say, half of what we're doing, mm -hmm. right, uh, that would be great. Like, And so, uh, yeah, we're going to have to grow in Niagara. That's the only place we have to grow because that's the world truly does want cool climate. I'm part of a group. Mary and I are part of a group. And Mary's, you know, 51% of the business. I think she grew to 53 this week because, you know, she even worked more on vacation than I did. But I think, <laughs> I think, uh, well, I don't, I try not to work that much on vacation. And, you know, I think when you see, when you go on with our group, we're part of a group called Summerness. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then, of course, we're part of a greater group that goes to London and goes to Montreal and stuff just with the wine, wine country Ontario. When we go out, they love our Oregon and our Burgundies, but they want our Niagara everywhere we go. And Summerness is going to Chicago and uh, has already been to New York City and going to Chicago and Calgary this year. And this is all done on the cheap, right? People stay with friends or they stay in flop houses. Well, maybe not flop houses, <laughs> Airbnbs, <laughs> yeah. today's flop house, where you don't know if the guy's going to show up with a key or not. and uh, Or a gun. Yeah, exactly. But it's all done on the cheap. And I've done five trips to New York City trying to get distribution there. But you're real small, you know. Mm -hmm. But they like it and they see what Niagara can do. So for sure that has to be. But that's not coming out of proud Canadianism. I'm proud because of it. But it's coming out of that's what's going to work going forward. There's lots of land left here. It's cool. We make subtle wines. I think the I4C is having an effect on winemakers. I think the Chardonnays are getting slightly more elegant here from people. That's that's another podcast. That's <laughs> yeah. All right, let's let's close it out there, and you got to promise to come back and yep. talk more wine. Oh, I love to talk wine, so we'll do it. Yeah, we need, right. we need to talk it. I think next time we'll touch on the history of uh, Le Clos Jardin and a little bit more dates and figures on the history of, of Bichelder and where yeah. it's going in the future. But uh, I think we covered a lot of stuff there. We definitely need some time to... <laughs> digest this yes if you've listened to this uh definitely feel free to listen to it a second time to catch all the uh village and crew that were uh, named and take notes take notes and uh, have a shopping list and uh yeah go grab those pinot noirs from uh, classics and from your uh, local vintages section so thank you thomas thanks for being in well thanks guys i'm so glad you guys are doing it i can't yeah. believe this is going to be our first two-parter this is going to be our first two-parter the thing is we were just getting to the good stuff we were just about to get to Le Clos Jordan and what's happening in Ontario. But you know what? I'm sure if anyone listening to this is like how you and I were in your uh, beautiful studio in downtown St. Catharines, 
I only needed the edge of my seat. I could have gotten a refund for the rest of it. Is that the, you'll only need the edge. Absolutely. Pay for the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. The edge. Yeah, so, yeah, he's a great storyteller. Um, you know what? I love Thomas. Hard to keep on track. Uh, but, but I think it was anybody interesting. would, it was would interesting. recognize that. It was interesting when he got off track, though. And I mean, Correct. for people Correct. who are... For, for he's, people... Hard, he's hard to keep on... Because we had... Well, not in front of us, but there was a piece... And we wanted to touch on various topics. And we realized that after an hour, we're like, are you going to come back and finish this story? Because, you know, after an hour, we can't... We can't have a three-hour podcast. People just don't have that kind of time. Or patience, just or like patience you, Michael. with us, yeah. let alone Thomas. Anyways, there will be a part two to this. We actually have kind of a, a bonus content podcast coming up, so you can pay attention for that. That'll be coming up very shortly. Bonus content. Bonus! The Edge. Anyways, I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave a comment. Uh, leave a review. Send angry emails to Michael Pincus. You want to wrap this up? Uh, I can wrap it up. Uh, I think you've been into the awesome sauce because you're slurring, but that's okay. Andre, good night. Bonus content. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.